Chapter Seventeen of From Mud to Mufti by Bruce Barron's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seventeen: Evacuated to Base, Monastic Seclusion, Return to London, Convalescence. The doctor came and examined me. He did a few conjuring tricks with that half golf ball at the back of my neck and gave me things to take. I read and thought and slept and incidentally felt very ill. Time went on, and after a week I appeared to be no better. I was apparently very run down. After ten days there the doctor who watched me came and said that any idea of my going back to Montrelay was off, and that I must be evacuated to the base. That's done it, I thought, but I little knew that moment was the turning point in the whole of my war career, and that I was soon to find myself in a position which I had never dreamt of. What I took to be an unfortunate termination to my staff career was in reality the first premonitory sign of being wafted into a job which was the only one of its kind in the army. I didn't know it then, and with a depressed spirit I went off with a gang of others all correctly labeled with our various complaints down to the base. You never could say what base it was going to be or what hospital there. Those mysterious labels they tie on you may convey a wealth of meaning to the medical authorities, but nothing to yourself. After the usual form of train journey, I refer to the sixty miles with sixty hours to do it in variety, we arrived at Rouen, and were split up into several different groups and sent in ambulances to the various hospitals. I went to a fine big one on the hill above the town. This one again was a trifle ecclesiastical. It had been, I think, a sort of incubator for would-be monks. These hermits had all been roped in for service with the French army, and the building was rented at a preposterous figure by the British authorities for use as a base hospital. It was a fine hospital, too, platoons of nurses and VADs, doctors, and all the whole outfit. I was put into a room by myself. That sounds very grand, but in reality it was a sort of cubicle in a long corridor. There were open wards there as well, but a lot of us were kept in the cubicles. I imagine these box-like creations were in ordinary times used by the budding monks. They were austere enough for anything. One almost wanted to get up twice a night to scourge oneself so as to complete the picture. In this harbor of refuge they were all very good to me. The doctor said I was very run down and must rest quietly. There was really no physical reason for this. But I have had such miserable times with my state of mind and imagination about the war that it is difficult for me to explain to others what a terrible ordeal it can be. There is no reason why one should not attempt to explain this phenomenon. It is simply this. There are types of men who can go to a war such as this and see only its practical and physical side. Such a man on returning home will say, It was terrible at Ypres. Somebody will say, why? He will then explain that the mud was something awful, and that they had to be up all night in pouring rain and never had a wink of sleep. Moreover, the ceaseless shelling necessitated them working on the trenches every day. I envy that man. I know there are others like myself to whom all that, though objectionable, is not the worst feature. It's the horrible idea of the thing. The sudden reduction in the value placed on human life, the thoughts on the devastating pain and sorrow caused away back home at each casualty, 
the precarious conditions regarding the mode of burial, which all depend on the local conditions prevailing at the time. These thoughts, and a host of others, make such a mess of one that physical ills are nothing compared to them. In fact, to sum up, the pain and devastation to the individual are directly proportional to the amount of imagination that individual possesses. The most suitable man for a war is a butcher, the most unsuitable, a poet. And so it was that I was ill and run down. But thanks to an inherited juvenile spirit I can permanently camouflage a lot of troubles, come up to the surface and drink in the joys of life. Under the soothing influences of kind-hearted nurses, aided by succulent substantial assets such as chicken and occasional champagne, I slowly recuperated in my cubicle and in a few days began to look back on past events and ache for pencils, paints, and paper. I got these and dived off into a volume of scribbles, sketches, and jokes on a host of topics which ironically amused me. If ever that monk goes back to that cubicle of his, he's going to find a fine mess on the walls. I perpetrated a series of most worldly drawings on the sides of his ethereal cell. I added enormously to the already nauseating number of autograph albums which I have from time to time scribbled in. Later on I was better still and went out. The medical officers very kindly invited me to their mess. I disgraced their walls with further efforts and later still I reached that state of physical fitness which entitled me to go outside the grounds and roam around the town. I wasn't long in taking advantage of this and daily went for a couple of hours off into Rouen. It's a nice old town, and was very pleasing in those summer days. I examined it all thoroughly. I sat in cafes and amused myself, as I always do, with pelmanizing the place and the people. I wandered around and observed the life of the place. Rouen had been swooped down upon by the British Army and had become a large military base. This, of course, leads to a lot of back-of-the-front departments. Brass hats shone all over the place. The Hotel de la Poste fairly glittered with them, some ex-gladiators from the front, others who had only heard about the front through the papers, or their friends. It was a merry town, Rouen. So the time passed. I was better, but again the medical board at that hospital decided I ought not to return to the front. Now this showed me a new and painful difficulty. I knew that if sent to England by the approved rules of the game, this would automatically cause me to be struck off the lists of the British Expeditionary Force, and I should be put back into the home forces. More depression and forebodings. However, I am very fatalistic, and I curled up mentally in order to await the day which I knew was coming, i.e., to have a label tied on my tunic directing me to England. At last it came and I left that kind, hospitable Red Cross monastery and was shipped with a crowd of others for England. We all went on the Asturias, which most people will remember was subsequently torpedoed. The boat was crowded almost entirely with wounded returning from the Battle of the Somme, that great and glorious conflict which cost us so much. I had a bunk and a crowded ward on the ship, and we were all very cheerful. A hospital boat returning to England contains an astonishing amount of cheer and brightness. The idea in every man's mind that he is being taken by Englishmen back to England, and the visions that he sees of dear old Blighty are enough to make him cheerful. It's the best tonic I know. A chap with an arm in a sling and with all his clothes torn to ribbons would be sitting on the side of the bed smoking a stinker 
and recounting, laughing, exactly how they all got held up in the barbed wire in front of a Bosch machine-gun. His companion would follow up this story with a grouse that his push had all been north of the battle, and he heard all the row going on but hadn't had a look in. That's the stuff to give em. When the Asturias reached Southampton, we were all put into ambulance trains and sent to various parts of the country. My lot was London. At midnight I and a few others were removed from the station by motors and taken to a hospital, but with the strange coincidence in my case that it was the same hospital which had received me after my blowing up at Ypres. I entered that hospital at Camberwell, and when I left, cured, it was to start on the most extraordinary part of my war life, viz., my tours round all the fronts. Before the end of the war I was to see the fronts from the North Sea to the Adriatic, and the backs of the fronts from Rome to New York. And so, I start another chapter. End of chapter 17. Recording by Philip Gould.